0: fair about your upcoming managerial career I'm interested to ask you the obvious question how did you become a professional and what was it like coming through at Manchester City like
1: anything as a player you know I started I left school I was told I, I weren't big enough and released by Everton at 14 I went to City the next day um, who we, we were actually in league one at the time it wasn't City that we now know as City as you know powerhouse of European football they were managed by Uh, Joe Royal I think at the time and they'd slipped into Division 1 in England so the third tier ironically the tier that I'm currently managing at 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 this moment and I I just wanted to be a player I I, I, I didn't care where that was I didn't I didn't think if if honest I think deep down I don't think anybody thought I was going to be good enough to play at the top level I don't think anybody thought I was going to to be good enough to be capped by uh, England and I think um you know, for me, I, I'd made a decision because my dad played for, you know, non league in England, knows the United, uh, Norfolk Victoria. He got to the FA Vars final with Warrington Town. And I'd travelled the length and breadth of, of, of the non league scene in, in, in England, you know, because my dad wasn't allowed to play on a Saturday unless we, I've got myself and um, three younger brothers and a younger sister. So my mum would say to me, dad, There's no way you're going to footy and leaving me with four kids in the house. Um, so I'd, i I I was the one that had to go. So I'd I'd, I'd go all the time and, and if, if I brought any of my younger brothers or sisters, I'd be the one who had to mind them, naturally because I was the eldest. So I, I went everywhere with my dad and 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 loved going. I used to they didn't have um, a mascot, so I'd put a kit on and be a mascot, I'd warm the goalie up for them. And and at the time my dad was playing centre midfield and and uh, Peter Orr um was the manager, and Peter Orr's son is Bradley Orr. So Bradley would be with his dad. He was on the same, you can't go and do the footy unless you take your kids with you, as, as my dad was. So um, Pedro and, and my dad, obviously, the thickest thieves, great mates, good drinking mates, played non-league football on a Saturday and Sunday together, won the National Cup for the Crocs of Legion on, on a Sunday, um, which is the most prestigious non-league um, uh, cup competition in, in, in England. And obviously on a Saturday got that United from relatively low tiers in England up until the Unibond Prem, which was at that point was one tier below the conference. I grew up non-league scene, following it round, and seeing the camaraderie, the teamship, the sing songs on the coach, the games of cards, and I just thought, even if I don't make it as a professional, I'm going to get a job and work. You know, I thought I'd go on the roofs with my dad and my uncles, and I thought, I'm going to play footy non-league I'll just play non-league I'll play you know whatever level I can get to if I can get 100 quid 200 quid added to my wages at the end of the week you know cash in hand for a few beer tokens and and I'm going to play Saturday Sunday no danger I I just love football I, I played as a kid virtually every night of the week every every game of football going I would try and get it get involved in um and I'm just someone who loves football just love playing football and at that point. I didn't think I could then, you know. I used to sit in school when, when we before we were doing your, your your SATs and your GCSEs and all that. I used to think, wow, imagine if you you were ever able to get ten thousand pounds a week, and, and playing football, wow, like what you could spend that on, and me and my mates would go through what we'd spend it on, and then at that point we didn't know about tax and national insurance, so we didn't realise that it gets that it gets swooped off you. Um, you know, as a, as a, as a footballer, you're in that high tax bracket, so everything you earn, pretty much, um, 50% of it, it's gone straight away on the pay ye. Um, so at that point, 10 grand a week was still. You thought you'd actually got 10,000 pounds in a wage packet every week, um, and then obviously the reality of that, when when you actually achieve that, wasn't wasn't um, what the dream as a, as a schoolboy had been. So for me, at that point, you, you know it was the early days of the, of, the, of the premier League and there was good money about there was there was good, there was good money about but it wasn't um it wasn't quite you know what it is and and later became um albeit it was it was still relatively a lot more than uh, my dad was in and working on on the roofs and and certainly a lot a lot less uh taxing physically um certainly in the winter months and 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 to play football for, for a career, you know, if I was getting 500 pound a week, then that was for me an incredible um, alternative to working on a building site for um, two, three, four, 500 pound a week, you know, in, in, in all weathers and, and all hours. So I just wanted to play rather than having to, to climb up on the roofs and be, you know, um, out in, in those elements. So for me, I didn't set myself. I've got to play in the Premier League, and if I don't get there, I'm not gonna. Or you know, I didn't put that pressure on myself, and it was never put on me by my parents. It was kind of like, you know, no one really expected anything to to come of me playing football. They hoped it would. They were, they obviously prayed for it and hoped for it, but they never ever thought it was. I wasn't like one of these highly rated kids who everything was expected of and had all these big contracts at relatively young age and all this pressure heaped upon me. I was able to just go under the radar and under the radar of people not really rating me, knowing I was okay and I wanted it, but not really thinking I was going to be good enough uh, or big enough. And then, you know, I I go to city at 17. They give me a a, a non-contract because they didn't think I was going to be big enough, um, which was six months long. At the end of that, they were like, you still haven't grown that much, but you know what, we'll give you another six months. And and at the end of that six months, I hadn't grown. And Jim Cassell, who's, who's now come to work with us, at Fleetwood, actually, and, and help us out enormously, sat me down one afternoon. He said, look, we have a, a voting panel of four coaches and um, we, we take, you know, intervals on players about whether they're going to progress. And he said, look, we've, we've sat down and had a discussion today and, you know, the coaching group, if if you get two no's in in this round table meeting, usually that's we move you on. And he said, you know, you've had four no's out of the five, and um, pretty much, you know, you, you, we're going to have to let you go in. You know, when 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 this contract runs out, which I think was about four or five weeks away from. Um, so I'm I'm I'm, eight, I'm 18 then. You know, I'm not a baby. I'm 18, um, and obviously I'm like shit. That's you know what? What am I going to do? So at that point, I, you know, you 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 remember all the great games you played in, the great stadiums you played in, and all that kind of thing. But for me, I always remember the tough moments that were really, really sliding door moments. When you know I maybe could have made it, and and if my mindset or attitude had been different, I probably wouldn't have made it. But I I've always had this headstrongness that I think I know better than everybody else, and that gets me in a lot of trouble gets me in a lot of trouble, but it also helps me um, navigate through the world um, in the way that has been, you know, relatively successful for me. Um, You know, it's it's helped me achieve the thing I dreamt about becoming as a young man. You know, I had one dream in life. That was to play in the Premier League and play for England. And I achieved both of those aims by the time I was 24. The next aim was I wanted to be a top-level coach and be as good as I could be at, at, at that, and I'm obviously on the pathway towards doing that. So, so from that respect, there's not many people who set out and have one dream in life and then a second dream and and start living those. So, so in that regard, I'm very, very fortunate. And obviously, we get a we we we, we get a one life as as far as I know, and, and and I think you have to make the most of it. So, I I get to the stage at City where I, I think I'm two or three weeks away from from being. Released, and the decision I made was fine no problem I'll get a job I'll go and play non-league football and these are wrong and I'll work my way back up and I'll show them I'm capable of playing at a a good level and and um, I was convinced of that in my head albeit nobody around me really was and that was the decision I made so I went home to meet to my father that that night I said look it's not going to work out I don't think that's city Um, and at that point I was getting I wasn't fortunate enough to be good enough that the club would pay for digs for me. So there was three of us. There was myself, a lad called Ryan and a lad called Stephen Ashton, who were all from Liverpool, who were all on that precipice. And the club wouldn't pay for us to stay in Manchester in digs because it was we were seen as too much of a risk on the contracts we were already on. So we had to travel in every day. So I used to get up about six o'clock in the morning um, Run to the train station in Highton, which was about a mile from the house. Get on the train, train to Edgill, get off at Edgill, which is near Liverpool city centre. Stand at the bus stop, wait for the National Express to come, National Express to Manchester, get off in Manchester in Chinatown, get a bus to Moss Side, pick my training kit up from Main Road, then get a bu- uh, walk across to, through the middle of Moss Side to Platt Lane, which was our training ground. Train two sessions a day leave Platt Lane about four o'clock and start that journey home. So I used to leave about six o'clock in the morning and I'd get in seven, eight o'clock of a night, every night. And we did that five days a week. Um, we had no money. So, you know, we had to get creative. Um, How uh, we, 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 we traveled and, you know, if we could bunk a train here and there and save on the expenses, then, then that would make a huge impact on the finances that we had. I think we were on 72 pound 50 a week. And we used to manage to get off Des Coffee if we were lucky and we could fiddle our expenses. We could maybe get an extra 30 quid out of him. He was quite tight, but if we kept the receipts and we picked up old train receipts, we could we could occasionally get um 20 or 30 quid extra off But But obviously, most of that money would go on travel. And I didn't even have any, you know, I was living with my grandmother at the time because my parents had split up. My dad had gone with my mum and I'd gone, uh, my dad had gone with my nan and I'd gone with my dad. So... That had happened when we were 14, so at that point, you want to give your nan a bit of keep, you know, a 10 or 20 quid, because she was feeding you, doing all my washing, looking, you know, looking after me, and I, I wasn't able to do that, and that was, you know, hard, because obviously they weren't very, very wealthy, and, you know, they were kind of supplementing your ambition to, to try to become a, um, a, a footballer, and then... After 18 months, uh, uh, sorry, when I was 18, um, I, I had the three-week period where I thought I'm getting released, and I went back spoke to me dad. I said, "Look, I might as well, I might as well knock it on the head um, now, early, and 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 get in at another club, go on trial at some of the lower clubs, or at least get playing even in the non-league, start to sign for the club that believe in you, that believe you can be a player." And I always remember my dad's best bit of advice he gave me he said. No, don't. He said, stay at City until your contract expires. He said, and just use the gym, use the facilities, get everything out of it, because when that when that's over, you're going to have to pay for the gym membership and you're going to have to train on the school field by ours. So make the most of the facilities. And I thought, yeah, do you know what? It's actually not a bad bit of advice, that. So I dug in. The two lads, uh, one of the two lads I was travelling in with, knocked it on the head and went and played in, in the non-league seats. Steve went and played non-league, in, 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 in if, if, which was my mindset also. But my dad said, no, stick out for another three weeks. So anyway, stuck it out. At the end of those three weeks, Jim Cassell put me back in the office and he said, do you know what? He said, I've, I've watched you training in the last few weeks and I've seen your, your desire and your work ethic and, and, and how much you want to be a player. And he said, when I sit and talk do you want to you and look in your eyes, I don't know why, but something just tells me I can't let you go. Um, so I don't know what that was. Even now, today, I have a laugh about it and say to him, what was that? And he says, "He, he said, I don't know, He just had this look in your eyes that you wanted to be a footballer. He said, so I thought, you know what, I'm going to give him a chance. He said, that I know everyone, he was the head of our academy and all the other the coaches, I think, had had, had had this poll earlier and I think four out of the five had said, yeah, he's probably better being released. And Jim ended up giving me a chance and giving me an extra uh, period just because he'd seen, you know, my attitude towards wanting to be a footballer. Anyway, in, within that six-month period, I'd grown, I grew. So by the end of that, I signed a year extension. Um, and before the end of that year was up, I was playing regularly in the first team. So it shows you, you know, how close um and and how good coaches and good people in your football club are are absolutely important. It isn't always about the players. It isn't always about the manager because it's about the culture. It's about everybody. And, you know, as a manager, I've only got one pair of eyes and ears and I'm completely and utterly reliant upon the people who are bringing into the culture and I have to be able to trust them and I have to allow them to, to, to use their good judgment and, and, and their skill sets as well as they can to help our football club it's not a cult it's not Joey Barton show it's not about me and 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 what I want albeit you know as the leader you do have to take the lead and 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 set the direction but it is also about hiring good people and and allowing them to do their jobs and feel comfortable in that space to to turn up and and enjoy coming to work and I think if you get that I think you, you, you allow people to start to reach uh, their potential in in, in whatever um, sphere that, that they're in. And, and as I say, you know, I'm a football coach and my expertise is in a short, very, very small space. There's lots of other people with better perspective about many other things than me. And I think as a, as a head coach, the better um, round table counsel you have and the more trusted and... and, and Um, experience that council is I think the better and that takes time to build and I think that's one of the key reasons all football managers you know need time to implement their philosophies
0: in terms of yourself you talked about the fact you were you were close to being released you got given those few weeks you, you grew you proved yourself during the time you were given you broke into the first team you made your debut against Middlesbrough. Now, no, the character that you are, this is a question I'm desperate to ask, did you go in there quite nervous, or you being you, did you go in backing yourself from the outset to say, no, I deserve to be here, I'm going to show you? Yeah, well, I'd,
1: I'd, um, so obviously, when you've become so close to getting released, everything afterwards is is a bonus, because I, you know, I'd sat and... St- I don't want to quote Nietzsche, because there's a really good Nietzsche quote about staring into the abyss um, and it relates massively for me because that's ultimately what I was doing. I was staring into the abyss of no longer becoming a professional footballer. Um, your camera's sliding up a bit there. All You're moving. Go on. And, um, and, and for me, it was, okay, I'm going to have to get a job and then I'm going to have to go into a, a, a highly competitive non-league scene. So it was a a, a kind of, okay, that's, that's very close to happening. I'd obviously, in, in a short space of time, grown, got in the reserves under of Harford and was doing reason, reasonably well. And and confidence just started flowing. I thought, my God, I've come that close to being see you later, that everything was a bonus. So I'm like, OK, now I know I can definitely get a club in League Two, I'm good enough to play in League Two. And then I'd be like, OK, I'm, I'm, I'm holding me on with some good players that we've been out on League One and, and and out in the in League Two on loan, who were from City's academy. I was playing in the reserves regularly. I was playing against people who were playing in first teams at other Championship and and Premier League uh, clubs. Because at that point, if you didn't play in the first team on a Saturday, you played in the reserves on a Tuesday night. That was the, the norm, and 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 those reserve games were full of players who had, you know. Who you'd watched on the telly, who you'd, you'd idolised growing up because that's how they got the fitness. These were the days before sports science where if you were out the first team for a prolonged period of time, you had to go and play five or six resi games to show you a match fit before you could be considered for first team selection. Nowadays, a lot of first teams will dip back in, they'll play in the 23s or they'll play in the odd behind closed doors friendly and then that's it, they're good, they're good to go back with the first team. 10, 15 years ago, that weren't the case. You had to, do the hard yards in the in the reserves to prove your fitness to a manager. So they were great. Um, they were they were really really good baptisms of fire because you you're playing them games. And I remember playing in a in a, in a game for Man City. I had um, on a Tuesday night against Leeds United when I was I think I just turned 19. I just turned 19, and I played centre mid with Kevin Horlock and we had Dad and Hookerby, Danny Tiatto. Jared Vickins, Sean to everybody who wasn't playing for Kevin Keegan's first team would you know, have to play certain points. And Leeds had um, Paul Paul Robinson in goal. Gary Kelly played right back. Ian Hart was left back. Lucas Ratherby Michael Duby played centre mid, er, centre half. Uh, Stephen McPhail and Oliver DeCord, centre mid. Um, Harry Kuehl played left-hand side. I mark Harry Kuehl, first half. I played right midfield. Um, and then I think they had uh, Caleb Fowle and played up front with another lad who the name escapes me. But the other two players were two young players who ended up playing, not in Leeds' first team, but they played, I think, League One and League Two. They were still very, very decent players. So that, so the, the strength of depth in that game convinced me. I remember coming out of that game and I'd done really, really well against Kuhl first half. And then Ian Hart was obviously the left back. And Ian Hart at that point was... Was arguably one of the better left backs in, in the country. You know that was that Leeds side before Leeds tipped over the edge, where they were where they were well funded, and the other you know they had Ferdinand and all you know superstars, Mark Viduka's, and were very very close to winning a title. Um, and certainly had a couple of good Champions League nights. I think they got to the Champions League semi final. I think Deportivo beat them in that. Um, but but they were a real top side in in England at that point. And I remember coming out of that game going. Oh, I think I think I can play in the Prem. I think I'm good enough. I, I don't know what, what gave me that, but I thought, OK, I, I, I think I can, uh, I, I, can get, I can get to this. And within six months' time, what, what had happened was um, I'd never been in a first-team squad, so Glenn Whelan, who plays for us now, Glenn, Glenn Whelan was always ahead of me, and a lad called Terry Dunfield, who was from Canada. Um, they were always ahead of me he was the year above me and Terry had played in the first team and got man of the match against Chelsea so he was a very, very highly rated lad and he was a hell of a player and Glenn Whelan was, was a year younger than me and was was ahead of me that's why they were going to release me um, months and months before and what, what happened then was I got in the first team squad used to go up and um, I knew I was, I was captain in the reserves and I was playing really really well and I knew I was I'm just getting this cup of tea off me missus here uh, I uh, no. Oh yeah, yeah they yeah. are, okay. Yeah, I've got it. No, I can't back now. Looking after me. Nice cup of tea. And then uh she's getting a bracket on here, so I'm getting looked after this morning. Um, yeah, so so what happened then was it, it it got to the point where I thought, okay, I can do this. And then the first team squad go up, and I'm I'm captain of the reserves. I was in a grey the form. Uh, I put a picture on Instagram a few a few uh, weeks ago of Arthur Cox he used to grab old me by the scruff for the neck. The first team would play on a Saturday, and he'd had a draw, or they wouldn't win, and he'd come in on on a, on a Monday, and he'd say to me, "Why weren't you in the squad Saturday?" Now he was assistant manager, so I'm going, well. He's having pick me, it was in my head, but I couldn't say that to him because he was. It, it's Arthur, you know, he, he, I loved him, but he was really, really tough with us, but brilliant. But he, he, he really gave us a kick up the backside when we needed it. And um, from nowhere, he just grabbed me by the like scruff of the neck and pinned me against the wall like, pinned me against the wall. He's not overly big, fella, do you know what I mean? But he, he just had that presence with him and um, pinned me against the wall. and He'd say, you best be, be in the first team next week. And I'd be like, half oh, of play for the reserves. We're, we're 18 unbeaten. I've been playing brilliant. You need to tell Keegan to pick me. He's not picking me. So that's not my fault. I said, whenever the training, training. I'm older on my own. You know, I, I, I my mindset at that point was uh, very, very strange for a young player. I was telling Paul Kutar, captain about it the other day. I was on the, on the phone to him and he was, he was asking me about when I was younger and I was saying, I was mentally ill because i my dad said to me when I was um, when I was nearly getting released. He said, "Look, if you want to be a first team player, you can't be mates with all the first team. You can't be going out drinking with them and socialising with them because you're trying to take their jobs. You know that that's what you're trying to do. You're trying to take their shirt off them on a saturday. So you can't be pally with them. You, you know you you're competing with them, and that really really hit home. I thought, oh god, yeah, he, he's right. Like, and I'd seen lots of the young players." go out drinking with the first team because there was bits of drinking culture still lingering about then and socialising because it, 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 it's quite glamorous. You know, the first team was driving Porsches, Ferraris, top cars. Obviously, if they're mooching about, they get all the top birds, they go to all the top nightclubs and get walked in. And as a young person, when you're from a council state in Liverpool, where you've had holes in your trainees and stuff like that, you know, you've been knocked back from every nightclub in Liverpool, not allowed in because you've got to be a face to get in that is quite appealing to a young person and especially when you're single and you're first coming into the world of, you know, girls flirting with you and so on and so forth. Um, and a lot of our younger players got attracted to that. So they, on a Tuesday night after the reserves of play, they'd go out drinking with the first team and I'd go, I'm never going to get ahead of him. He's already ahead of me. He's got X amount of years of experience and his reputation sealed and he's got his contract. If I go out drinking with him and I'm hungover, Wednesday morning so I didn't start drinking until I was like 21 I, I just didn't drink because it was like I can't drink and play football you know where, where I grew up was there was a lot of things going on around me as a young person you know crime, drugs drinking all chaos and and I made a decision when I was 14 I'd seen you know people from school start to dabble in you know narcotics and I thought I can't play both sides of that field if I want to be a pro I've got to do everything right because I haven't got enough talent not to do everything right so I made a decision that I was going to make it and everybody else's opinion to me was not important. I'm going to do this. And that's where my headstrong stubbornness, I think helped me because it allowed me to block out the rest of the world and and set off on this singular pursuit to try to get to become a Premier League player and an England international. And, um, it was obviously a lot difficult once I achieved that to then switch that mindset off. Cause it's not just like a light switch you can turn on and off. It's something that was deeply ingrained. It was, it was very much a habit that I, I it was a, a deep habit that I had to form to be able to achieve uh, the dream I had in in, in in my life. So I get to the point where I'm, I'm living like a Spartan, honestly, like I'm, I'm tr- all I'm doing is Eat, train, sleep, recover. Eat, train, sleep, recover. That was my life's pursuit. So you can imagine how much improvement I was getting out of, you know, running physicality, technique. I, I, I was practicing every facet of the game. And it was only later in life that I read, like, outliers and, and bounce and all these sports psychology uh, books and and. and, and really, really great mindset books for younger people. I read them a lot later, and I kind of went, "Oh, weirdly, I happened upon that through just my pure state of being. Just through circumstance, I kind of had lots of similarities with stuff I was reading about, how elite-level performers become elite-level performers. Um, So that gave me, again, another enormous boost of confidence to take into... The next phase of my journey which is coaching and management because I was in so much trouble as a young person and I had you know I was always quite open about it I would always speak about it to all, all kinds of people and I started working with uh, Peter K at Sport and Chance um, when I was 23-24 because I was having real problems with drink and getting into trouble because I started drinking quite late and then the effect of drink on me wasn't fantastic for for my personality and got me in um, many, many scrapes I shouldn't have been getting into. Um, and I had to delve into why that was happening. And so I started out at a relative young age about male psychology and certainly about um, what happens in our minds and why it happens in our minds. So when I look back now, that was that was spawned out of me being badly behaved and dysfunctional within society as a footballer. But that has helped me enormously as a coach and a manager because I've I've had a a sports psychology and a male psychology um, education without having a degree or anything to show for it, through living it through the virtue of my own life, but also having to delve into that to, to make sense of the world I'm in. So that helps me whenever I'm talking to young players who have any struggles because I can go, okay, I remember that happening. I remember uh, people talking to me about that who were you know, experts in the field and, and that gives me a, a, a an opportunity to to help um, the the young people or the people I have to manage now as a as, as a manager of, of a club on a daily basis and without the chaos in my younger life I wouldn't have had that skill set in my in my life now so I, I, you have to accept the good and bad of, of of everything that comes callum as as part of your life's journey and try to use it um, as, as a positive. I mean, so many people talk to me all the time, how dare you say this, you've done X, Y, and Z, and then there'll be a rap sheet come up. But I'm like, well, well, what am I meant to do? Am I meant to just go, okay, yes, sir? I won't do anything again then for the rest of my life, because that's what you're saying, or should I just, like, you, you know, or do we just try to move forward and get better and make better decisions and try to to be better at what we do as, as, as people um, over the years? So... I'm just trying to think, I have lost track of, of what you were talking about. You were asking me about uh, getting in the first team, the Middlesbrough game, actually wasn't my debut. So, uh, as was, everything that's bizarre and absolutely insane tends to go with the territory for me. I don't really take a linear pathway to uh, the next step. It tends to not work out as planned, but ultimately get me there in the end. So... <laughs> It's it's not a career path I'd advise for people, but it's certainly one that has just bestowed upon me. So I get in the reserves. I'm doing really well. I think we went twenty two or something unbeaten, and we've knocked off some really good sides um, in the reserve space. And what happens then was we play Middlesbrough away, and I got called up. And I'd never been in. I'd been in the squad in a twenty two man, but if you were to in the twenty two man as a young player, that pretty much meant you were in Main Road and you were doing all the jobs that the kit man needed and with, so you were getting players' boots and you were there just in case things went wrong. And it was a natural progression for young players who were never going to be in a matchday squad, but needed who they thought could get in the first team and needed to be normalised in and around a senior dressing room. So at that point, I knew I was making progress without ever getting in a, in a matchday squad, so on the bench or you know named as a sub or in a start 11 and then we played man united it's the famous game where i think sean go to scores a few it's the last one at main road i think they, they, they togged them and i was in the i was in the, the the 20 for that but never made the bench so i was in the down dressing room seeing all that go on and about four or five months after that i'm like when am i gonna get a chance i i can't play any better i'm, I'm training well and I'm one of the better I think I'm better than some of the players who were playing on a Saturday for the first team in training. And I got put in a squad for Middlesbrough away. And I presumed it was going to be, I was in a 20-man squad, not the 22, because it was 22 for home games, 20 for away. I was in a 20-man squad and I thought, oh, I'm just going to get up to Middlesbrough and I'm going to have to do all the jobs again. And I get to Middlesbrough and get in the dressing room before the game. So this is it was the night England, I think, won the World I'm sure England won either the World Cup semi-final in the rugby or the World Cup final. Because I always remember getting up for um, one of the... No, it might have been later that, actually. There was a big game on, anyway, a big England game on um, in the in the rugby, I think. And I, I just always remember it being around that Middlesbrough time. So he puts me, he, uh, puts me in the squad. I get, I get to Middlesbrough, I stay in the hotel. Me and Sean Wright-Phillips rooming together. Wright is obviously starting because he was a fixture in the first team. And he's like, I reckon you'll be on the bench tomorrow. And I'm like, man, I can't see yeah. I think I've been in five or six squads. No one's injured. All the first-team players were fine. And anyway, overnight, someone had got um, ill. I can't remember who it was. One of the first-team midfielders was ill. And get into the dressing room at the, at the Riverside the next day. And, and I'm on, he names the team, the gaffer, at, at 1.30. So, and then team and subs. And I, I, I thought, well, sure he's just said my name as a sub there. I turned to Robbie Fowler, sitting next to me, I went, it's nice up there, he's gone, yeah, yeah, you're on the bench, I've gone off. So I'm buzzing now, I'm on the bench. I'm not knowing whether I'm going to get on, but I'm buzzing, on the bench. Um, and there's some big names on the bench with me, you know, Ali, uh, who was on there, um, Ali Bernabia and, um, you know, senior players who'd had, had massive, massive careers. So I'm thinking, well, I'm on the bench, but I'm probably not going to get on. But at least I'm on the bench, that's the next step for me. So they're getting beat, I think, 1-0 at half time. Janini uh, was Emerson, centre mid for them, and you know I'm watching it like a fan. I'm sitting there going, "Wow, this is like Premier League. This is going to be on match of the day, this game and all that." Um, and then Keegan goes, "Right, um, get warm." To me, you, you're going on. So it's about they're getting beat two nil. we just scored the second goal. So I'm like, "All right, look, we're getting beat, not great, but I'm going to get my Premier League debut, and that you can never have that taken away from you." So I get to the a uh, re. I reached down to get my shirt, and, and there's no shirt there. The shirt's gone. So what had happened was, and this could only happen to me, what had happened was, I'd, because I, I was in the 20-man squad, but they didn't think I was going to be on the bench, the kit man. So he only printed one shirt out for me. I would think I was number 41 at the time. So he's gone, well, I'll take one shirt. He's probably not going to be on the bench. Overnight, one of the first-team players I got ill, so I'm now on the bench. So Chappy, the kit man's now like, OK, I maybe should have printed more than one shirt but you still probably only need one shirt. So I'm in the dressing room, I get changed. So naturally, first time on the bench, I'm watching the other first team players on the bench, Ali Barnaby, Darren Huckabee, all these senior players who've been on the bench and played loads of games. And not one of them put the shirt or the shin pads on. They put the shirt and the shin pads together and they put a training top on to warm up in so they didn't sweat when they were... So I thought, oh yeah, that makes sense. You know, you're putting a fresh shirt on then when you come on. So I copied them. And at half-time, when, when the players went in the dressing room, we went to warm up the players who were subs on the pitch. So we naturally left our shirt and shin pads where we were sitting on the bench. Warmed up, come back, presumed they would still be there in a football stadium. And lo and behold, of all the shirts that were stolen, mine was stolen. I'd never played a game. No one knew I was in Middlesbrough and a middleman fan had leaned over and took, stole one of the shirts and it was mine. And I was the only player who had one. Every other player had a backup shirt. But because I was in the squad quite late, I only got one. So when, when the manager's gone, right, Joey, you're going on. So I've got ready, got stripped, got me pads on, gone to get me shirt. My shirt's gone. So I've gone, I've known straight away, I've gone, I left the gear at that. Someone's robbed that. So the shirt's been nicked. That's gone. One sec, let me just take it. Pen, stop shouting. So, so I, I'm, I'm aware my shirt's been, um, been half-inched. So, I've gone, look, it's gone. I, I left it there. And he's gone to the kit man. Right, go get him another shirt out of the dressing room. So, this is all the while. They're getting the board ready to put me on. So, he's leaving out Ali Bernabi and a couple of other senior players and uh, uh, to put me on.
0: <laughs> too loud. No! You're too loud.
1: No! Um... So what happens is Ali Benabia, um Chappie comes back out of the dressing room and says, Gaffer's only got one shirt for him. He's not got another shirt. So the Keegan at the time says, right, you fucking sit down. And Ali, get, you, you get stripped, you're going on. So Ali Benabia comes on as sub, I don't come on. So going to dressing room after the game, the lads are gutted. They've been beat, so they're not really paying attention to me. Not, most don't know what's going on. Keegan's just not even speaking to me. So none of the staff have spoke to me. They're like furious that I've forgot my shirt in their eyes. I've lost my shirt. Not knowing that has been robbed. And the first team's been beat, so there's no point in me trying to um, save face because he's just not going to have it. So all the uh, coach journey from Middlesbrough to Manchester's two and a half hours or whatever. I remember sitting, I was crying my eyes out because I thought, my dad said to me, you'll get one opportunity. Sometimes in life you only get one, certainly when it's like getting in the Premier League and you must take it. You can't not be ready. So that's why I'd had this Spartan lifestyle because I was like, I need to be ready if I get a chance. Because the, the 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 seldom in this game, certainly at that level. And if I get one, I've got to take it. So I prepared mentally for all this. Obviously, got it. The shirt had been nicked. And I thought, oh, fuck, there's my chance of making my debut in the Premier League gone. And I sat and I, the reality of it hit me on the coach journey on the way home. And, you know, the lads came over and consoled me and all that. But I was pretty much. Unconsolable because the dream I'd had for 15, 16, 17 years was so close and yet it's been taken away, and I was really, really upset by it. And then nobody at the club spoke to me. Um, manager never, I got dropped then to never got in another squad for about four months, never spoke to me really, never explained the decision. Keegan, it was one of the reasons that I, I fell out, and when I got in the first team, I became. Um, I didn't really uh, give Kevin Keegan the, the respect he was due. Uh, I regret that now as, an, as a senior player, as a senior person, or a more senior person, but at the time, I never forgive him for the way he handled um, the aftermath of, of what happened to me there, because it was very, you know, in my world, it was very, very traumatic for me, and I didn't need him to be nice about it, but I needed them to, to to just care about the human being at the bottom of it, and, and and I felt he negated that. And obviously, naturally, he had probably more press and matters, but it, it never quite. We ne. I never ever felt he he, he really cared about me after that. Um, I felt he was he was forced to play me because of my ability um, and, and how well I was playing, but I never ever felt he, he cared about me as a person, and and that was based off what happened there and. Um, I never got in another squad, but, but my mindset was like, okay, I'm just going to come back bigger, better, stronger, fitter, faster. I've been that close to it now, I know I can get there, and I'm just going to redouble you know, the discipline and 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 the effort um, for the rest of my life um, to get there, because I know I've come so close to it, I'm not going to let that opportunity pass. So um went back to the reserve, played even better football, and... We play in, I think, about March – it must have been March, April because it was the day of the Grand National. I always remember the day I made my debut at Bolton away. It was the day of the Grand National, so it's quite late in the season. Mark Vivian Faux, um had gone down with an illness at the at the time. I think he was sick, he had a stomach bug, and on a Friday he's, he's out of the game. So I get pulled into the squad. I've not not been in any squad since my shirt got s- stolen – um, I go in the squad on the Friday, but I'm like, well, he doesn't really fancy me, Keegan, so I, I'll probably just be patting the squad out, making the numbers. And uh, we're in the dressing room at the Reebok, and he names the team. And again, I've, I used to, I was quite close with uh, Robbie Fowler and Steve McMahon, and so was, they they looked after me as a younger player. And I've turned to Bob, and I've gone, how's I in the starting eleven there? He's gone, how are you starting lad I've gone, I haven't done any team shit. I don't know, know where about. I don't know where I'm meant to be off set play. Go going, well, you better find out. I'm oh, oh, fucking hell. I haven't told anyone. I didn't know I was starting. So I'm like, shit, I'm starting in the Premier League. And midfield, I think for them on that day was uh, JJ Akacha, Ivan Campo, and Yuri Jorhev. So I'm like, oh, fucking hell. Cheers. Cheers for this. You know, and both at that time were decent. Sam had some good players there and they were a good side. And, and um, so anyway, make me day. I, I go out to warm up and I'm nervous. It, I'm, I'm shitting myself. I'm like, I didn't expect it, so I had no mental preparation other than I might get on for 20 minutes and all of a sudden I'm starting. I've, I've not been a sub, I've never made a substitute appearance for the first team and now I'm starting in the Premier League. So it's like a thrown in at the deep end moment where I'm like, I shit myself, warming up, I'm all over the gaff because I'm like, the enormity of what's about to unfold in, in 45 minutes is kind of dawning on me. And then I just remember coming in after the warm up, and I just remember just calmness just coming over me. Just remember sitting in the dressing room and just becoming really, really calm. And and I thought, you've prepared for this for the last four or five years, all the sacrifice, getting up early, getting on the coaches, um, getting on the buses, getting in, going out in the house when it's dark in the winter, getting back in when it's dark, Um, no social life. Um, all the sacrifices you've made all the training in the off season you've done everything's prepared you for this moment so if you're not ready now then you're never going to be ready because you've you've not cut any corners you've done everything right you've you've lived this disciplined Spartan lifestyle Um, so this is sink or swim moments let's fucking embrace it let's get after it and weirdly I went out and I was calm composed and I think that's That's the thing that you can't recreate on a training ground. That's the thing that you can't see in a young player. Some some will just swim. Some will sink. Some with incredible talent, with incredible physical attributes. Everything ticks in every box. Will be thrown in the deep end and sink like a stone. And there'll be others that have been the run to the litter, that have never been fancied, that have got all these things that they can't do particularly well and you throw them in. And they'll come alive. They'll find another gear, and they come alive. And and that's sometimes the challenge of coaching and management is players can only find that when they're exposed to that. There's no there's no precursors. There's no warning signs for that. So that's why at Fleetwood, I like to give people opportunities. You know, I put younger players in situations where they're gonna be stressed, where they're gonna be a little bit over the head so that we can come back off them to then put them back in at a later date. And I I use that because I I felt that as as a young player coming through myself. And um, you don't, you don't um, fulfill your potential unless you get yourself in areas of discomfort. You know, it's not about, you know, that we have, yeah, yeah. We have um, a culture at the minute where we're not allowing, um, you know, people to win at sports days, it's like, oh, everyone gets a medal for taking part and stuff like that. Yeah. Um, and my missus has brought me breakfast into me here, look. Um, so, yeah, we've got a culture at this moment in time that um, has maybe lost track of the fact that you need to struggle to, to, to ultimately get to where you want to get to at, at a moment. And, and, and the struggle kind of makes... Uh, the success worthwhile, you know. The culture we live in at this moment, you know, everybody needs everything yesterday. Everybody needs to be successful within 10 minutes of starting a new profession. Otherwise, you know, if I can't monetize it, then what, what, what am I gonna? Do? And I just don't get that. You know, you have to put the hard yards in, and the hard yards are put in when nobody has any visibility of it. You know, and and you get paid back for all the things that you do that are, are completely and utterly unseen. I mean, I see you know, people putting all these things on Instagram, Facebook, Twitter about how great they are. I mean, I've been having a laugh at this moment in time because um, the Strava um, running app that I use has got this thing on time and elapsed time. And there's there's lots of people being exposed for posting and times saying, I've ran this, this my personal PB 5K. And then when you look on the elapsed time, they've stopped a couple of times along the journey. And and this is, you know, this is something that we do have, you know, this culture of bullshit is is amongst us. And I think, if the, the people are kind of pressurised to lie about the scenarios that they're in on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram because of the public pressure to be brilliant at everything and you don't have to be brilliant at everything you know it's, it's, it, it, you, it, it, it's the trying I think and it's the having a go mindset that needs to be encouraged more you know we need to encourage more people to have a go not have a go with them when they don't get it right and I think Hopefully, one of the things that may well come out of the, this crisis we're in now is a change about the, the mindset of 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 how we we, we organise you know the society uh, around us. So I, I go for the shirt, don't get the shirt, and then make me debut at Bolton. We lost the game at Bolton two nil, um, but I played. So there was that was set. Bolton game was seven games out from the end of the season. So I've not made a substitute appearance. Played 90 minutes at Bolton. We lost two 0 but I played okay because, I, you know, everyone said I did well. Go to the next game. We play Middlesbrough at home. Um, um, I was given a, a man marking job on Janinho, Remember the, the little Brazilian who was a yeah. good player. Um, so I had to. We played a three-man midfield, and my job was to nullify him, take him out the game. Um, I've got a shirt somewhere around the house. I've got loads of great shirts I don't have on walls, but I've got in a bag, which, like, for me, the, you know, that was, you know, to play against him and swap shirts with him as a player who grew up watching him, that, that was, they were incredible moments. I didn't swap shirts so much when I got on later on in my career, it was more people asking me for my shirt, but when I was younger, I love swapping shirts with, with great players that I respected, and because as a young player, I think it's a nice thing to do to say, "Hey, I grew up, you know, being influenced by your ability, and and c- could I please have a shirt to put in on my wall at some point to remind me of of this junction?" Um, but as I got older, the the, the kind of novelty of that uh, that kind of weighed off. You know, you you're then competing on an equal footing, and you're like, "Hey, I'm gonna fucking ask you for a shirt." You know, we're we're, we're having it every week. <laughs> um and and i always seen it when people asked me for my shirt I, I was great it was nice because you were like okay this is somebody who's probably grown up watching you and being influenced by you know we were influenced by lots of people but um it, it always felt like okay that that for me felt like a a a coming of age as a player that younger players would 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 ask for um your shirt to to keep as a memento of 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 that occasion so um yeah, I managed to do a good, good enough job on Janino. He gave me shirt after the game, and then I played. I literally played 90 minutes for the for the remaining seven games. So the, I, I, it's strange that to do that, I went in. I went in late because I went in 1920, and and then I played right through. I never came out. I was never dipped in and out of a first team, and I literally became a starter. And and I always knew deep down. I always thought when I was playing reserve team games, the bigger the occasion got the better I played um, the bigger the crowd got the better I played so I had a, a, an intuition from way before I got in the first team I thought the minute these put a crowd in 30 40 50 60,000 I know I'll come alive I just I used to just come alive and I still do now whenever I'm backed in a corner or whenever I've had any big thing blow up I'm usually at my most productive in the aftermath of that I Eddie Jennings, who's our director of football, really good friend of mine, he says, you have this incredible ability to function when there's just madness and chaos going around you. And weirdly for me, when I was playing, I, I, I thought I had to create that to get the best out of myself. And it's only later on in life now that I realise I don't. So if there's, if there's chaos or the, if there's a fight or something going on, my I will naturally, some people go away from it. I would naturally be, be more drawn towards it. So if you were out in a nightclub or then there was a fight and someone's going to try and break it up or my natural instinct would be to try and resolve it, get it sorted out, where I wish I had the, the mindset that went the other way and went, so that's nothing to do with you, leave it. I don't know what it is, it's just something I've, I've I'm, that's innate. I've always been like that, whether it was on the school playground as a kid or whatever. I've just naturally always gone to conflict resolution. Um, so in a first-team space, I knew that when the going got tough, I got going, I came more alive, I came more into my own. And I thought, well, once I get in these big, big stadiums, this is exactly where I want to be, this is where I'm going to thrive. And luckily for me, I got a full examination. We went to Anfield in the sixth, in the sixth senior game Um, and won at Anfield, uh, beat them 2-1, Nicholas and Elkha scored two, and it's the last time Man City won at Anfield, if you ever see it, it's still doing the rounds now, every time even Guardiola's sides go there, the last time we won there was the first time I ever played there as a senior player, and it was my sixth game, and it cost Liverpool getting in the Champions League that year, now as an Evertonian, that was a nice thing to have, coming from a family of Evertonians, and I thought to myself, fucking hell, that's easy. that. I scored in my second in, me- in me second game. I scored against Spurs at White Hart Lane, and then sorry, my third game was against Janino. So we played Bolton away, Spurs away, and I think Middlesbrough was at home was the third game. I scored um, in my second game, and I wasn't renowned for scoring goals. So by the time, I, so that was White Hart Lane. We won two, three, one there. And I'd scored. Tough place to go. I know that now. I didn't know at the time. So I thought, fucking hell, that weren't that hard. Liverpool was the sixth game. Um, We went there and won 2 1. I thought, fucking hell, all this Anfield's at fortress. That that weren't that hard. I never won there again in my playing career. And I've got a few draws and stuff like that, but never, never, never won. Never won there again in the next 15, 14, 15 years attempts or whatever. So at that time, you know, you were kind of flying by the seat of your pants. So finish the season. Which was the last season at Main Road, which was the game against Southampton at home. I was fortunate enough to play in the final ever game at an iconic stadium, Main Road, and that that's a special moment because, um, you know, that was somewhere where I'd watched a lot of football as a YTS, and that somewhere, you know, coming going to City at fourteen, I'd watched a lot of games there and dreamt about playing there. So, luckily for me, I just got in the first team. Um, in time to 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 play for you know Man City um, there and that's something that you know will live with me forever. The following season, um, Keegan in the summer, uh, Mark Vivian Foe passed away in the in the I think it was like a Confederations Cup, um, which was a huge uh, shock to us all. Um, but I, I do remember thinking well, that's one less player, selfishly, I, I, you know, your mindset. It was like, well, that's one less player I have to compete against next year. Um, and I love Mark. He was absolute diamond guy, big, gentle giant, top player, top guy. But but such was the mindset of, of, of the volatility of that elite level um, culture that, you you, you, you you know, you were saddened that a teammate and a friend had died. But within a week, you'd flipped over to, well, it's one less person I've got to compete with. Um, which thinking back to it now is, you know, you, you said to you, mentally ill. You, 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 you're on that pursuit and, you know, you see it with many other sports and people ask me all the time, you know, why has why Lance Armstrong done what he's done? Why is, you know, all these athletes and uh, taking drugs? and Because they're competing and and, 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 and to get to that level, There's a darkness that you'd have to um, engage with. You can't get there being a nice, friendly, happy, smiley person. You know, we even see Mo Farah now, the nicest guy on the surface. But we're looking at the Salazar and this Project Oregon in in what's going on. And and it looks like there's certainly been a bit of grey area uh, uh, operation stuff going on. There's certainly been a few things, whether it's injections and so on and so forth, that we're seeing that don't really fit with the public persona of Mo as this smiley, frat, friendly, happy-go-lucky guy. It looks like, you know, and, and and I've always known that. You cannot get to the elite level, and, and you know, Mo Farah is the elite level in his domain without engaging with the dark energy that lives inside all of us. You know, we all have that battle between good and, and bad. You know, we, we, the, the, the good voice and the bad voice. I've got a tattoo on my leg, the good wolf and the bad wolf. wolf. There's lots of parables and lots of uh, analogies about it. And I do think, you know, when it comes to mental health and, and, and your own mindset, you know, we all have them internal battles going on. I think the more we talk about it and the more we're open about it, the easier it is to live with. And I think, you know, in acknowledging that there's a dark energy within you, acknowledging that if you can harness it, it can be very, very productive, is, is beneficial if you want to... Uh, fulfill your potential as, as a person. I think trying to suppress it, trying to uh, pretend it doesn't exist, trying to um, drink to get away from it, for me, none of those things worked. It, 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 in effect, they made it um, very, very, very difficult uh, for me, a lot more difficult than embracing it and accepting that, yeah, look, there's a, there's a part of my personality I'm not entirely in sync with and I don't agree with all the time. But ultimately, um, I have to accept that without it, um, I wouldn't be able to do um, what I'm currently able to do. And I have to learn to live with um, the good and the bad of, of, of that. So, yeah, it, it was. It, it, it's one of those things where, you know, as a young player, you, you look back and I think, like people say to me all the time, like oh, if you would have been like more, you know, knew what you knew now, then would you you know would you think you'd have played more for England, had better moves? But I said, look, I don't know. For me, I'm looking at it going. I came very, very close to getting uh, released by City and playing non-league and working on a roof. So I, for me to play for England and have Marseille on my CV, Burnley on my CV, um, Man City, Newcastle, Glasgow Rangers, um, QPR, uh, I, I, you know, I'm absolutely privileged to have played for those great clubs, and you know whatever people say about you as a player, I got a full international cap for England against Spain. It was all only 18 minutes, but Spain then went on to win the European Championships and the World Cup in the, in the next years. The midfield that day, I think, was Anderson Yesterday, David Elbelda, I think Javi Hernandez, and Torres played, uh, you know, players who made an impact for them in, in later on tournaments. And and I know how well I played in that game. I think I'd done more than enough to get another opportunity. Um, but I got arrested... Uh, about two, three, four weeks after that, for an altercation in a, in a in a taxi cab in Liverpool, which which I was in, but had nothing to do with me, and that got proven in in court later on. But at the point of time, I was on bail for it, and whilst I was on bail at that point, you couldn't be called up into an England squad, so I never got called back up to an, another squad against you know maybe a, a lesser opposition than Spain, where I might have got more playing time, and, and and I think I would have um, certainly given another good account of myself, but. Ultimately, you know Frank Lampard and Steven Gerrard, and uh, with, with the mainstays of that England central midfield, and I don't think I would have usurped them at that moment. So I probably would have only been playing a bit part role to those guys anyway. And we had, you know, Michael Carrick, Scott Parker, uh, Paul Scholes. I think you know there was there was lots of good midfielders around at the time. So it wasn't like, you know, you were naturally if you got in the squad you were going to play. It wasn't as straightforward as that. But I think. You know, when I see Phil Neville, who get 48 caps or 68 caps or whatever, and you see, you know, th- th- there's lots of other players who, who've made a huge dent. You know, Scott Parker, a huge dent in caps. Do I think I was as good as, as them? Yeah, without a shadow of a doubt, but, but didn't get the caps to, to, to kind of uh, to go with that. And, you know, that is a little bit of a disappointing thing. But also on the flip side of it, when I think back to the 18, 19-year-old kid, if you'd have told him he was going to get one England cap, he'd have been astonished. Um, if you go back to a 14 year old kid getting released from Everton at 14, if you'd have said, Look, you can have one England cap, he'd, he'd have snapped your hands off for that. So, you know, in, in reality, I was, I think I played outside the top late in England for four seasons. Um, one of those was at Rangers. Well, seven games of that was at Glasgow Rangers. Um, I had a year at Marseille. Great season. We, we pushed PSG. Ibrahimovic, Carlo Ancelotti, the first Galactico phase of them right to the wire, they knocked us out of both cup competitions and beat us to the title finished second, qualify for the Champions League but because I was on a, a, a contract that QPR had been relegated the year before, I had to come back and play in the Championship because Marseille couldn't afford uh, my contract so I came back, QPR, we managed to win that playoff final, which was the Bobby Zamora moment, which was an incredible journey. And I won't bore you with the details of it, but it, it's in there in the book about how mad football can be at times. And then the other, only other two years were, were at Newcastle um, where we won the title and at Burnley when we won the title. So the, the, the four seasons I spent outside the top flight of England, um, they were very, very different seasons, but all ended up with you know a, a, a more winning um mindset and approach than 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 what I did in the Prem in the Prem you know I was kind of playing into sides who were trying to get into like the top eight top six never quite good enough to play for a side trying to win the title um which was a disappointment and I'd I'd love to have been part of one of those you know really really good sides but but I was also fortunate enough to play for some great clubs and, and with some great teammates and and have a, a, a career I didn't think was possible at 14, and, 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 and lots of people didn't think was possible at 14 and 18 and 19. So um, you, you can't really complain. And then get banned for a year, work in the media, so get to see that side of it. And then right in the fucking deep end again as a, as a coach, You know, right into, right into a coach role without you know learning off anybody else um, how to do it. So, yeah, completely unique journey, um, I wouldn't advise it to anybody um, but but weirdly it's got me to this point in my life and um, I'm as I'm as happy as, as I've ever been albeit you know there's lots to look back in the past that and think I wish that hadn't happened and I wish I'd done that differently but ultimately at this moment in time as a 37 year old father of three uh, I can't really go back and change that um, so you have to live with with those decisions and, and try to to use um, everything you can to, to make better decisions uh, going forward.
0: In terms of your time at Manchester City, um, it was a really successful time for you. You mentioned the fact that you got you get the England cap, you're doing well. You played under Kevin Keegan, then Stuart Pearce. There was interest in you from lots of clubs. There was interest in you from Middlesbrough. There was interest in you from Everton and David Moyes. Um, in terms of City, How do you reflect back in your time
1: there as a whole? Uh, A a, a struggle, a constant. For me at City, it was a constant struggle. Um, I think that spawned from the fact that I don't think I was ever really rated, as I said to you. From 14 to 17, they didn't think I was good enough to give me a... A YTS contract, which were actually paid for by the government, so they didn't even have to foot the bill of it. They didn't think I was good enough to be put in digs and have to travel in. So I kind of knew where they where they thought I was, and I, I didn't feel sorry for myself because ultimately that would have led to them being proved right and me being proved wrong. So you have to fucking dust yourself down, accept that the world isn't a fair place, and 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 change your attitude towards it. You know, don't expect anyone to give you anything because likelihood is they're not going to. Um, and I, I decided, you know, that was my mindset. Got forced my way through f- sheer force of nature in my mind into the first team and stayed there. Um, and, you know, as I said to you, Keegan after the shirt got stolen from me, um, didn't approach it in, in, in a way I felt I would have. I certainly wouldn't have done that as a manager now. I don't think it was the right thing to do. Um, but he was human and he's made a mistake he hasn't probably had the perspective that, that he, he's probably needed to make the best decision um, and you know whenever it came to contract negotiations or anything like that I never ever forgot that so I was like okay you know Jim Cassell gave me an opportunity but he was the one person Jim who, who, who I think really believed in me and Arthur Cox I would class classes similar to that um, and I think Arthur was very very influential in getting Keegan to give me an opportunity and then once he gave me that opportunity, I think my performances um, made it very, very difficult for him to take me out of the team, even if he didn't like, you know, um, me as a player. I think the fact that I was playing so well and doing better than the players he bought, I think, uh, brought pressure for him from the board to give academy players an opportunity. And then afterwards, you know, Wrighty was the first one through the door. I think I came next, and then. We ended up getting a load of young, good young players from that academy at City. Something that they've not done uh, since they've had the trillions of pounds invested, and they got rid of everybody who got all, you know, the international players through that City. I think we had 21, 22 internationals in a short space of time through the academy, which is uh, as good as probably any academy's had in, in at any phase of, of um, its development in in any club in this country. And then, um, you know, that kind of was was in the ether and. You know, I felt at that time at City, um, I was, you know, one of a number of players who were outgrowing, you know, the capabilities of the football club. You know, the chairman at the time was a great guy called John Wardle, fantastic man. Doesn't get written about anywhere near as much as he should do in the City story because he was paying players' wages and kept that club afloat out of his own personal fortune. Um, and without without him, Manchester City, as we know it today, would certainly not be in. In the position it's in, he he, he was uh, somebody who should be. And, and you know, f- whenever I get opportunity to talk about, we will constantly remind the people of just what an important role he played in Manchester City Football Club. Um, John was stretched in terms of what he could put in to to move the team on. So we were constantly in a cycle of um, selling players or signing players who probably weren't good enough from abroad for, for the Premier League. And as a player who was trying to get in England squads regularly, I knew I had to be playing certainly in the top eight, top ten of the Premier League. And at that time, you know, we we weren't able to do that. Um, you know, I think the, the season before I left City, I was the top scorer in in in, in the in, in our team in, in the Premier League with, I think, seven or eight goals. Um, and we stayed up comfortably, uh, which is bizarre because, you know, all the data would tell you the way we were playing, it was was poor um, and we didn't score enough goals and the next season we were likely to get relegated if we didn't have investment. and I got interviewed after the last game of the season we'd drawn one way 1-1 one, one away at Watford and I'd said multiple times I, I don't want to do the interview because I've got nothing positive to say because the reality of it is this is a fucking shambles uh, and we're, we're hanging on by fingernails and I, I, I can't bl- I'm not a liar so I can't really go out and toe the party line it's just not something um i like to do um so i do the interview uh paul till a good friend of mine he was the press officer at the time i was like Tiggs, i don't want to do it i feel like i'm going to say something that nobody wants me to say no but just do. so i've done the interview and i ended up i think in that interview it's, it is it is online somewhere i pretty much just leveled and said you know if i was a city fan i wouldn't buy a season ticket for next year what we've been playing is crap but <laughs> just told the truth obviously that went down like a lead balloon um and there was there was ramifications for that at a club level, but I was like, "Well, look, I told you I didn't want to do the interview, and then when I' done the interview, I told the truth, so like really what have I done wrong other than I told you I didn't want to do it, but you know you've got to toe the party line and that kind of thing, and um at that point, I kind of knew i need to I need to go. I've been here nine years, there's no investment coming in. I spoke with the chairman, and like you know I, I was being paid under market value because I wanted to stay at city and be a talisman for City and they'd given me an opportunity and given me my debut and I wanted to repay that and the City fans were brilliant with me um, and I wanted to repay that and I'd been in a number of scrapes at the club and I thought I've got a duty to, to stay here and, and and scrap away and then I spoke with the chairman John Wardle at the time and he pretty much said look we've got no money we've got no investments I'm trying to I'm trying to find investment to sell the club and also you know there's a transfer fee available for you and and, and the club could do with that um, so Everton had tried to sign me in the February before when um, the uh, sorry the January before but I was playing that well I thought I, I think I'm on the verge of getting called up by England here the way this team plays suits the way I'm playing so I don't really want to go to a new club new players after have to learn that and lose a bit of momentum that might cost me getting in England squad and as that transpired uh, I, I, I said to Everton look I don't want to move in January it's not a great moving space I'm going to revisit it in the summer. I had a clause in my contract for five and a half million, so the price wasn't going to change anyway. I said, look, I want to finish the season here. City were in a precarious situation, had a couple of results, they could be dragged into a relegation scrap, and I didn't want to leave and have fucking, it is fault for the, we got relegated on my CV. So I thought, no, I'm going to see the season out. I told all the interested parties. It wasn't just Everton, it was five or six clubs. I said, look, I just want to wait till the summer. I got called up in the Fed, so the January closed, like I got called up in the first international, and I think it was the February. So it was the right decision for me personally. City stayed up by by and it was the right decision for the club. And then I thought, you know, this I need to start thinking about um you know going if I want to get in the England squads and I've had a taste of it I wanted that, you know, because that's the pinnacle for a young English player. I need to go into a side that is better than the side I'm currently in. And that can be pushing into that top eight, top six, top four bracket because, you know, how am I going to get it at the Gerrard and Lampard? How am i am we're going to get it at the Michael Carrick, who's at Spurs? How am I going to get it at the Scott Parker, who is at Newcastle? How am i am we going to get it at Nicky Butts? And if I'm playing in a side, that's at the bottom end of the table, playing boring football and getting relegated or scrapping. And, you know, I'm not going to do that. So I made a clear decision that I needed to, to, to leave or certainly think about leaving and look for opportunities. And then the Wofford interview um, um, had ramifications because I'd said about we'd signed second-rate foreign players and players who weren't good enough. A number of players who I was in the dressing room with who weren't good enough um, and were foreign took umbrage to that. They weren't happy at all about it. That that led into the, me and Usman Darbo having an altercation on the training ground. Um, and. That speeded up my exit from from City because at that point, you know, the manager at the time was Stuart Pearce. I felt I'd pretty I had been his top scorer. I had been arguably one of the better performers, and I felt he owed a lot more loyalty to me than what he displayed um, in the in the Darbo instance because Darbo was a player who'd not trained properly, not impacted the first team, not led his life correctly in and around the training ground on a daily basis and pretty much was someone that you wanted out the fucking building sharpish because he wasn't going to help you be a good football team. Um, so for me, when, when Stuart Pierce and the club sided with with Darbo in it, I was like, OK, uh, that's my green light for saying, OK, no problem, you make your own bed, uh, you, you, you can kind of lie in it, I'm, I'm off to do uh, what I need to do. And and that summer I, I, I joined Newcastle, um, albeit... The same summer was quite strange because I'd agreed to sign for Newcastle, who'd just been taken over um, by Mike Ashley. But I'd signed under the Shepherd, so I'd signed about three or four weeks before they sold the club. I never signed for Mike Ashley, and obviously I signed for Freddie Shepherd and Sam Allardyce. Um, in the interim, Alistair Macintosh phoned me from Man City and was like, "Look, we want you to stay. We're going to get, you know, John Wardle's about to sell the club to new investors." and we wanted you to stay, and obviously, and I said, look, I, I've had nine years here, I don't think it's productive for me, I need a change of scenery, I need a change of emphasis, I need, I need a new challenge, um, and being a kid coming from the academy into the first team, you, you know, you can get into a routine that's not productive, so I decided that the Darbo thing was the, 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 the opportunity for a fresh start, um, and luckily for me, it was the right time to go, because the club was sold to Tax and Sinawatra, um, I think Pierce was sacked, and, and sven Gordon Eriksson came in, and the club was a mess. And you know, he was had a number of issues over the next couple of years. At the back end of that, they were bought two years later by the Abu Dhabi royal family, and City, as we now know it, takes off. But nobody seen that coming. I mean, if I'd have seen that coming, I'd have stuck in and dug in. But no one in in world football seen that coming. So um, that is a disappointment that I never got to play with at City with all those you Know superstar players because certainly I think you know I could have been a valuable component in those teams. Um, you know, because the job I did in in in, in sides with, with good ability players, um, was a, was a job that was um, very, very vital, which is you know, winning the ball back and getting it back to the players who are better than you. Um, and I was I, th- I felt I was very, very good at that. Um, so playing in better sides for me would have been, I think, easier because my job is to as a destroyer is to get the Get other people off the game and, and and get our better players on the ball. And the better players you play with, that's easier for me. It's tough doing that when you get the ball back and you're the one who's then got to go and create. It's you know with the, you're then limited by your own ability. It'd be a lot easier for me if I could get the ball and give it to Steven Gerrard or get the ball and give it to Luka Modric or get the ball and give it to you know whatever uh, top players um, were playing in the Premier League at that at that point. So I leave that summer. Um, and, you know, there's Everton are back in Newcastle, West Ham, who were owned by the Icelandic banks at the time and were throwing fortunes at it, Arsenal, um, vague interests, uh, Middlesbrough, few, few few sides that had kind of tracked me for a number of years. And for me, the only real the only real uh, three were, you know, you obviously hanging on thinking, if Arsene Wenger calls again and, you know, you, you have to think about Arsenal because, you know, that is a side that can top four, top, you know, top one, top two. You know, he's he's a great manager. Um, you know, i had been close to signing for Liverpool when I was 20 um, under Gerard Houllier. I actually agreed terms and everything and then Hulier, um lost his job and Rafa Benitez got the job and I, I still thought it was on and then, Rafa Benitez, in his wisdom, I don't know why he did this, but he went and signed Jabby Alonso, who's was shit, in Do you know what I mean so? Um, I don't know why he never signed me. Um, and so, so J- Jabby was signed from Sociedad at the time, but I'd actually agreed terms, I'd had everything done with Liverpool, but because they change manager, Rafa wanted Jabby, and as I say, that turned out to be a disastrous decision for them. But, but that's why me and alonso always had loads of beef when we played we were it was always a he, he's a great player jabby by the way but a great competitor fierce competitor as well and and to be fair to him for a Spaniard didn't mind getting swatted didn't mind the physicality and there was many many times uh, he'd give it out as well so i think that's why he done well in england he could he could do both he could win the scrap and he, you know he could he could well not he wouldn't necessarily win the scrap but he could hold his own in a scrap um, on the pitch and he could also pass the ball like no one you've ever seen um, but, but for years I, I always dialed the intensity up For Jabby Because I always thought He's Nick me moved Then I could have been Playing for Liverpool And getting the ball And giving it to Gerard's a lot easier Than getting the ball And giving it to Kiki Masampa
0: So we'll dive down To the ocean And we'll make her Home in a deep sea cave And shells Will all be open They'll be filled With song They'll be filled With song We'll dive down To the ocean I will make her home in a deep sea cave and her shells will all be open. I'll be filled with song, I'll be filled with song.